Land weekly land talk show devoted to learning about land and farms, buying and selling, ownership, and especially for real estate agents and realtors. Hey guys, learn from the experts. This is free land education. My name's Lou Jewell. I'm an accredited land consultant with United Country Real Estate Sutton Properties, along with my co-host this morning, Teresa, who will be joining us here in a few minutes. Buying or selling our homes in land or farms in western Piedmont, North Carolina, or southern Virginia, just give us a shout, guys, we'll help you out. Our office is at 102 East Main Street, next to BB&T in downtown Pilot Mountain, North Carolina. Our company website is www.allsuttonproperties.com, that's A-L-L-S-U-T-T-O-N, properties, plural, dot com. All of our shows are dedicated to the Realtors Land Institute, our staff and our members. Our national site is www.rliland.com. If you're looking to buy or sell land or farms, you want to be, work with the people that have the most education and knowledge and experience. This is where you go to. Go to that site. We have uh, agents all over the country, uh, and uh, about 500 of us are accredited land consultants like myself that has the uh, full degree uh, that we uh, offer, full designation. So we'd also like to thank our host, LandHub.com. Buying or selling land, LandHub is the place to be. So make sure you check out LandHub.com. Hey, our guest today is Lisa Menixma. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, Lou. Thanks. You know, you have an incredible last name. Do you mind if I spell it? Go ahead and spell it. No, I love it. It's M-U-N-N-I-K-S-M-A, but you pronounce it Munitsma. You know, I mess it up. I always do. Munitsma. 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 Yeah. Wow. And that's a beautiful Dutch <laughs> Thank name, you for right? Trying. Yeah, that's a beautiful Dutch name, right? Yes. Yes. It oh is boy, Dutch. what a great heritage. Anyway, we've got an incredible. Uh, I've had quite a few people. This is the 151st show, one-hour shows, uh, that we're broadcasting this morning. And I've uh, had several people over the last year or two uh, asked about sustainable agriculture and, and what's the future of that. You know, our population obviously is increasing and our resources are decreasing and something's got to give here. So uh, you're an expert in this. You're an extreme freelance writer, editor, communications consultants, and you've uh, specialized in the uh, food systems uh, uh, area. And um, um, if I may, just to introduce you a little more, uh, on your on your uh, website, you talk about communication professional combines creative drive with strategic development, excels in developing new programs, marketing community connect connections, and crafting uh, consistent, accessible content, special interests in farming, food and food systems, uh, health, lifestyles, and the arts. All of your work that you do boils down to one thing. You're a storyteller as a farmer, and I love storytellers. Uh, and you talk about from the seed and the animals and the land and traveling and stories, places that myself have been and where you're going. And you look at food systems, and you're a very big advocate for that, and I, I totally support that. And stories about those voices that are heard when decisions are made and when people are working hard for good food in their communities. As a writer turned editor, I tell stories of others and help others tell stories more authentically. So you also uh, have a podcast uh, that we want to promote. So if you're not driving out there, uh, a lot of people like to follow along with our, with our uh, guest. And if you'll go to um, uh, www.communications, plural, or communications, simplified.net you can follow and look at some of uh, lisa's uh, wonderful articles in the areas that she's covered your podcast hosts a hobby farms magazine which is a great publication that's been around a long time hasn't it it has um i'm gonna get it wrong at least 15 years it's been around sure and they have they have some other uh, publications too as part of their family right right yeah chickens magazine is a popular one that they are part of, um, and they have a great online presence to uh, hobbyfarms.com. And your your podcast is Growing Good. What a great name. Um, and yeah. you can all find that on Spotify and Apple.com. Are there any um, other uh, uh, 
accessibilities? Um, I, I, most of the podcasts, uh, places, most of the places that you find podcasts, you can find uh, the podcast that is called Hobby Farms Presents Growing Good. Okay. And gotcha. then also, if you go to hobbyfarms.com slash growing good, all of the episodes are there as well. Okay. So you've got some pretty good exposure there. So that's www, and we'll mention it several times, communicationsimplified.net, just like our show's land, let's talk land.net. We, we like the .nets as opposed to the .net. Right. <laughs> So, where are you calling from? Uh, I'm calling you from just outside Frankfort, Kentucky. Frankfort is the capital city of Kentucky, but it's actually one of the smallest capital cities in the U.S., and I live on a small farm. Um, I rent just a small piece of property that is part of a larger uh, 12-acre organic farm. Okay, where do they grow there? Um, on myself, I grow primarily herbs, and uh, elsewhere on the farm, they focus on greens, and um, both of us, um, me and the farmers who own the property, are, are both involved in local food systems work here. Perfect. So I know where to come to get my salad, huh? Right, yes. They are definitely the farmers to go to to get your salad. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to talk about sustainable agriculture, um, and I've got some stuff from Wikipedia, but... You know, can you kind of give us your thoughts of what that word, I mean, where did that come from, uh, the word sustainable agriculture, and uh, what does it really mean? Sure. I mean, sustainable agriculture, just the word sustainability, is um, doing something without taking away from something else. You know, sustainable means that it can continue for the long term. And uh, sustainable agriculture is a term that's, maybe been co-opted, um, maybe doesn't quite mean what it once did or what a lot of us would like to believe that it does. Um, and the last time you and I talked, Lou, you pointed out that when you Google the phrase sustainable agriculture, the the first things that come up are actually ads from... From Bayer and you know, the big the big guys. Yeah, yes, exactly. Multinational agrochem agrochemical conglomerates. And um, is, so this is a little bit misleading because while every corporation should have a sustainability initiative, um, you know, just having one does not make you sustainable. And, and labeling your chemical products with the word sustainable does not make them sustainable. And so this is where I feel a little bit like um, maybe we've strayed from the actual meaning of the phrase sustainable agriculture. So I guess um, before chemical and synthetic inputs and genetically modified seeds or genetics have, uh, before they were the norm in our food system, what we had was sustainable agriculture. It is farming with nature, essentially. Um, and I think at this point, a term I sort of prefer more than sustainable agriculture, just because it is maybe more authentic at this point, um, is regenerative agriculture. Um, and the idea behind that being that, you know, we don't want a system of food production that's simply going to sustain itself. Um, we want one that's going to uh, grow and regenerate and produce better results going forward. And especially, you know, you mentioned in the beginning uh, that we have a growing population and we have people to feed. So um, a regenerative agriculture system is um, perhaps the direction that we want to be going in. Boy, I like that. And I'm going to change the name of the show when I get back tomorrow. <laughs> and, uh, instead of sustainable, well, sustainable agriculture I'm, is still a thing that people I'm going to put Lisa says it's you know, regenerated. It's, okay. Mm -hmm. I like that so much better. And, and you're right. It's uh, it's a shame, you know, how our systems work, you know, the the uh, big kind of control everything, and they kind of push terminologies out there and, uh, you know, to their benefit and not to our benefit. But I really like this. So let's get more into that. Um, um, so what does this really mean, regenerative? I know you explained it, but can you give some yeah. examples? Sure. Um People are also familiar with the term organic, um, and if you see products in the grocery store that have that say they are organic, that means they are actually approved by a third party to um, certified by a third party to be following the organic program standards. So it, here, it's our standards are set by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Elsewhere, um, other government organizations set these standards, and there are um, specific practices that um, prohibit the use of synthetic inputs and, uh, and genetically modified inputs. But um, there are also people who say that organic practices don't go far enough. 
enough that there are certain things that could be done better, um, particularly in the realm of animal agriculture and the idea that conventional agriculture animals are, well, particularly let's talk about chickens, for example, um, are generally don't have access to pasture, generally are kept in warehouses. Um, maybe they have a window, but that is that is where our chicken comes from, you know, if you buy your typical grocery store chicken, as opposed to if you buy a chicken with an organic label on it, you want to believe that um, that chicken has uh, perhaps lived a better life. And the for sure, certainly some of them do, but the, you know, the organic rules are kind of not as stringent as some people would like to see them be. So then there are, um, in addition to the U.S. Department of Agriculture organic standards, there's others, um, lesser known labels like certified naturally grown, or there's a new one coming up called the Real Organic Project. And um, so all of these also are, are terms and labels that people might be familiar with. So um, they really all, though, revolve around working with nature and working with the seasons and um, sort of working with what we have rather than forcing um, something on the earth. So when you're driving through the Midwest uh, or really most places and you see acres and acres and thousands of acres of one type of crop, like a monoculture crop, um, corn or soybeans, or if you're in the South, cotton, um, when you're out in nature, you don't see just one type of plant go on forever and ever. It's a whole diverse array of plants. And so um, that's a big tenet of sustainable agriculture is to have a diversity, biodiversity um, of crops and um, to work livestock into your system, uh, just like you would see if you were in the forest, uh, as opposed to on, in um, a thousand acre field of, of corn. So what would that look like, Lisa? Give me a picture. Um, well, different things. I mean, it's different things on different scales. You know, a lot of the farms, if you are a farmer's market shopper, a lot of the farms that you would visit um, might grow 40 different types of vegetables throughout the course of the year. And that biodiversity helps their farm um, ecosystem for sure, because different crops bring in different insects and you want the good insects there to um take care of your bad insects, and uh, also it helps um, not just with on-farm systems, but with um, economic systems as well, because if you're growing 40 different types of vegetables and two of them maybe don't do so great, then you have the other 38 to help pick up the slack, whereas if you're only growing tomatoes and you have 10 acres of tomatoes fail, then, you know, now you've just lost your entire season's income. So um, I, I often point to the, to the small scale sort of farmer's market level farmers as being these um, small to mid-scale examples of what sustainable agriculture kind of looks like currently in, in our country. Yeah, I had the pleasure of having Dr. Uh, uh, Applebaum on. He's a, he's a, uh, uh, golly, and uh, Huh, ecologist, and we were talking about mm -hmm. how uh, plants talk to each other through the root system and how they share chemistry, hey. and if one gets a disease and one's healthier, they'll send chemistry through the root system. You know, it, nature, it's amazing. I wish humans would, would work like uh, nature does. Uh, and, 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 you know, like in the forest, uh, when they timber in the old days, they would leave the mother tree or several of them, and so if the young saplings would come up, you know, you had the mother tree that had survived, and and, and, and built immunities like we do in our body and was able to share as those uh, uh, younger plants uh, grew uh, to spread that chemistry uh, through the uh, root system. It, it's all connected. The whole universe is connected. And, and uh, so th th this makes sense, and probably the yield is going to be a whole lot better, too. Uh, and, it's absolutely uh, true. Yeah, and you're going to have better food, uh, and, yeah. and, and it's better for the environment. So um, our guest today is Lisa Manikma, and this is Let's Talk Land. We'd like to thank our sponsor, LandHub.com. Sell your land, land of your dreams.
Okay, so mixed agriculture, we were talking about that. Uh, can you give a little bit more uh, uh, vision on that? Sure. Uh, the idea behind having all these multiple crops going in any given year um, really allows farmers to figure out what they're good at and what they enjoy growing, uh, because sometimes those two are not the same thing. And um, everyone's farm is different. Uh, everyone's climate is different. Um, even we have multiple. Um, microclimates, you know, I, where, where I, where I grow is sort of at the bottom of the hill, as opposed to the, the farmers, um, who I rent this property from, they have a plot at the top of the hill and we experience different things in our gardens. And this is just, you know, within, I don't know, a few thousand feet of, of each other. Yeah, your, soil, so, um, your soils change, you know, you got different soils and it moves around and then you got different moisture and you got sun orientation, daylight hours that are important. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So having a range of crops that you're producing allows you to take advantage of these things. And this is what I mean by like working with nature rather than forcing sure. um, forcing our will on, on what we're trying to do here. So um, uh, having all these different crops as well, you know, everything is seasonal. So for, for example, you plant garlic in the fall and you harvest it in the early summer. Okay. So then those beds that garlic was in, that's now ready for um, when the garlic comes out, it's ready for fall crops to go in. So you can plant, you know, your broccoli and your kale and your cabbage. And then that will grow until, um, well, depending on exactly where you are, that'll grow until mid fall, maybe into winter. And then um, you can put a cover crop on it and then you can uh, get it, put it back into production in the spring. So the same piece of land can produce multiple crops when you have all these varieties going on. And um, that also helps you rotate your crops because you don't want to grow the same thing in the same place every year because the pests that want to eat your tomatoes are going to wake up in the spring and be like, wait, there were tomatoes here. <laughs> and if Where did it go? Your tomatoes are not in the <laughs> if your tomatoes are not in the same spot, then, you know, um, it's going to take them longer to find your tomatoes the next year. So um, uh, so all of these pieces fit together to make it less necessary to use um, inputs, to use any kind of pesticide or insecticide or anything like that that we don't want to be spraying on our crops. Um, and uh, it also, you know, every plant, requires different nutrients from the soil and some re return nutrients to the soil. So um, we're able to allow our crops to feed each other from, you know, uh, from season to season. Lisa, this type of growing, are we talking about herbicides, pesticides? Um, you know, are we talking about chemical support or is this all natural by uh, using different well, plants and what they, they deposit, uh, you know, in the rotation? Um, there, there are both, you know, there are, there are um, pesticides and um, insecticides that are um, approved in organic production. There are natural compounds that, you know, combat um, various pests. Uh, and then there are also the, um, yeah, the idea behind the organic approved ones, um, it's possible that they cause less environmental degradation than the synthetic um, chemical options that are available as well. And, but still, even in um, sustainable farming, that's sort of a last result, last resort. If you have a pest problem, you try to take care of it with other things like building your soil health and improving your crop rotation and things like that. Sort of spraying for something, even spraying a, a natural compound is sort of the last thing that you reach for in your okay. toolbox. Gotcha. So uh, it's interesting. I had a show early on. A guy, a realtor actually in Brazil, had contacted me through a third source and um, wanted to uh, promote uh, agricultural in Brazil uh, because they had a governance shift and uh, more pro uh, uh, business. And one of the things was uh, getting the crops to, uh, to the uh, distribution. And of course, you know, that's always a consideration. And and they were committing several billion dollars to uh, build new rail lines uh, from uh, growing areas to, uh, you know, just to help them do that. But in the conversation, yeah. he mentioned that they actually 
was one of only two places in the world that had two crops in one season. They could actually grow soybeans and, uh, and corn uh, in a 12-month period and have two different harvests. Oh, yeah. So that, right. That's great. That we, we definitely don't have a growing climate like that. Um, no, but are, are, are we seeing more uh, 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 growth in buildings, uh, you know, hyponic growing and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of these, um, uh, especially with the pandemic that we had, you know, a lot of a lot of people were losing businesses or scaling down, and and uh, and there's a, probably a lot of commercial real estate out there that could be converted uh, fairly easily to uh, grow lights and, and water source and uh, do and grow in, inside uh are we seeing more of that, in your opinion? Is that starting oh, to pick for up? Sure. Yes, for, for sure. And there's even a, um, a push toward using old shipping containers okay. as oh, yeah. um, hydroponic operations uh, because, you know, the idea behind those operations is you don't need um, you don't need actual sunlight. Like, you know, they use all artificial light and their nutrients all come from inputs into the water um, as opposed to, like, you know, needing soil and, and to, to regenerate soil. So, for sure, the uh, indoor growing operations are, are definitely becoming more and more popular. And um, that actually is, is part of, is one of the debates going on in the U.S. Department of Ag organic sector as well, is do we look at those types of operations as organic or does organic require um, vegetable production to take place actually in in actual soil? And so that's been an interesting um, interesting debate to watch. Um, I have not been part of it. I don't know Understand. enough about that. To, but but to we're starting to, we're starting to see that worldwide too, right? I mean, it's, you know, who, who's the leader in this? Is it the United States, or there other countries, uh, major uh, countries that are uh, involved, or are we kind of leading the way? Um, you mean in terms of sustainable agriculture in general? Exactly. Um, well, I guess it depends on how you want to look at it. Um, in a lot of ways, we have sort of um, removed sustainable agriculture knowledge from various cultures. If you look at, like, the Green Revolution after World, World War II, um, when um, largely corporations from the U.S., um, went out into other countries, into developing countries, and introduced um, the technologies and the seeds and the inputs um, that we were pretty sure were needed to feed the world. Um, When that happened, a lot of indigenous knowledge and um, generations and maybe even centuries of, like, cultural knowledge about food production and food sovereignty and um, sustainability uh, were definitely damaged, if not entirely lost. Um, so if you look at it from that perspective, <laughs> sure. um, perhaps perhaps we're not the leader. Um, there are definitely people doing great work um, in the U.S. now uh, and pushing that work forward for sure. Um, but there, I would say, I, I would hesitate to say that the U.S. is a leader in sustainable agriculture. I think there's a lot of good work going on um, in a lot of places. So it sounds like we got some challenges out there. How do we get more people involved? What's the um, process? Well, that's other that's, than this show. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, that is. I hope we're of, adding a little uh, bit. What a question that I try to answer in my work every day. Um, I guess the answer is complicated. It is. Um, uh, I became interested in the food systems work that I do through the lens of sustainable agriculture because um, I see local food systems as necessary to support the whole picture of what we're talking about today. So um, one of the biggest challenges, and this is one that I want to be sure to hit on because it's in your field of vision, perhaps something that um, your listeners will um, uh, identify with, um, is uh, land access. And um, the folks with the easiest access to land are the folks with generational land. And um, that, uh, that excludes an awful lot of people, you know, given the history of this country, um, uh, landowners are largely white folks, um, largely affluent folks. And so this is a 
excluding an entire um, subset of our population who has a passion for producing food and a drive to care for the land and care for their communities. So um, land access is uh, a a big piece of what is sort of standing in the way of growing sustainable agriculture. And I grew up um, in suburban New Jersey um, on on the sort of garden side of the state of New Jersey, um, but still just 60 miles from New York City. And I can't even begin to imagine purchasing land in that area to farm. The, The land prices are just like, I can't wrap my mind around it. I've been in Kentucky now for uh, 20-ish years. And um, even here, though, land prices where I live in central Kentucky are out of reach for an awful lot of people. And, um, uh, you know, everywhere, this is a supply and demand issue, of course. Um, And because we're not making more land, as you know. Uh, (laughs) But, um, you know, in my area, the demand is coming from... um, uh, everyone's favorite Kentucky distilled product um, from bourbon, that bourbon corporations are snapping up land, um, largely flat, open, prime farmland to build more and more uh, of the houses, the, the rick houses to age their spirits. So um, between, you know, the land ownership gap and the inaccessibility of farmland prices, um, land access is really a big issue to preventing the growth of sustainable agriculture systems and the um, ability for younger people to get involved um, because farming across the board, the age of farmers, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't looked recently to see exactly what it is, but it's, I mean, average age of farmers is maybe 55 or older. Yeah, um, I think you're right. And yeah. And uh, so we have to get some younger folks involved and um, land access to land for farming is uh I mean, it kind of has to be the first step for that. We need land to farm. It's going to be interesting, isn't it? <laughs> interesting is a good word for it. <laughs> but uh, you know, there's still you know there's still the urban farming. Uh, you know, I lived in New York City and and visited uh, where you grew up, beautiful area. Uh, spent a lot of time in New Jersey, in Upper State, mm-hmm. New York, and Fire Island and all that stuff, Long Island. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I had a floor-through garden apartment uh, on West 69th Street, old brownstone, the ground floor with uh, southern exposure, and had a 14 by 14, uh, uh, it was, uh, and actually had a peach tree when I moved there that was producing peaches, it sounds crazy. But, uh, you know, there's a big movement there uh, I've seen over the years. I was there from 74 to 84, uh, which is uh, Mm -hmm. different times, but uh, it was just starting then. Uh, A lot of my friends, they you know, had the little uh, uh, balconies or uh, uh, exposure to sunlight or even uh, in an apartment that had the right orientation of sun. You know, they were growing herbs and tomatoes, and it's crazy. So, uh, you know, it's uh, just an interesting observation that it's not at the big land level. But, uh, you know, how how much does the agricultural extension uh, uh, help? Uh, Because I know I I refer them quite a bit uh, and actually have interviewed them about some of their free, it's free programs, so our tax money pays for it, and they're sitting there at their desk and twiddling their thumbs and hope somebody will either call and ask a question about how can I start a small garden in my, my backyard or, you know, what type of, can you test my soil or check my water or, you know, what type of vegetables can I grow in this area? And, you know, you're familiar with them, obviously. Um, you know, right. Yes, I think I think extension is a wonderful resource, and I mean I guess every every county's extension is different. Um, in my county, I'm friends with my agents; um, they have been tremendous help to me, um, both as a farmer and um, just you know doing food systems work and and help. They're wonderful connectors. You know, if they don't know something, um, they definitely know the person who does know something. Um, and I'm always I'm always uh, suggesting that folks talk to their extension agents and. So that they offer easy, easily accessible and easily understandable soil tests um, for a very low price. That's also uh, huge for anyone who is wanting to garden. And you're absolutely right about the urban, urban gardening and urban farming. Um, it doesn't take giant plots of land to produce your own food. But if we're looking at scaling up sustainable agriculture to feed more people, then um, we kind of need land for that. Absolutely. So our guest today is Lisa uh, Munich. Manikma, I'm going to get it right. I got one more chance here. 
And uh, this is Let's Talk Land. And we'd like to thank our sponsor, LandHub.com. If you're looking to sell land, try LandHub.com. So we were talking about the challenges about the subject we're talking about, sustainable, uh, feeding the world. Mm -hmm. What other challenges um, do you think we have or that you've identified? Um, well, uh, you know, a challenge just for farming overall is um, the, the challenges that we're seeing with our weather and with climate change and um, whether you want to say climate change is um, caused by one thing or by something else, I mean, you have to look at the, the temperature highs and the temperature lows and the droughts and the floods and um, the swings that we have between these things. Um, they're very real. You know, I mean, I, I see them just in the seven years or whatever that I've been farming. Sure. Um, and um, they're super intense um, and they're impacting every living thing on a farm. So... Um, whether you are a conventional farmer or a regenerative, sustainable farmer, these are um, challenges that are facing all of us and require um, adaptation for sure. Uh, so um, I kind of feel like with the, you know, the larger scale conventional farmers have government-sponsored um, crop insurance as a safety net. Like if something goes terribly wrong, then they are still guaranteed some kind of money for um, something that they did not get to harvest. But many of our sustainable farmers are just not large enough to get specialty crop insurance um, that would cover them in a disastrous Lisa, year. is that something that could be done uh, uh, effectively by doing co-ops? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a matter of numbers. Uh, and, you know, uh, uh, organizing and localizing uh, groups of sustainable farmers uh, and, and going together, and maybe they would qualify for some type of crop insurance. I mean, I'm just thinking out loud. Yeah, that's an interesting, I don't know enough about I don't either, the, just common sense. Especially but. crop insurance, to know if you could enter into that as a, a cooperative. Um, I like the idea of it. Um, it certainly should be a thing if it is not a thing. Exactly. Well, you know, if you put it out there, that it's out there in the universe, so hopefully it'll be created. So. <laughs> right. We're putting it out there, right? right? Right, right. Yeah. Um, and I guess other other challenges um, facing uh, how do we feed people is, um, again, something that faces all farmers is um, just the challenges of rural America. And I think this is something that is unique to the United States as opposed to other countries because our area is just so big. You know, folks from other countries come here and are just like, I don't understand how there is all this space. Um, our, our, our stretches of rural area are just really vast and um, we're lacking in a lot of places quality and reliable internet access and um, as more of our business moves online even you know food business isn't totally moving online um, small-scale farmers sustainable farmers uh, need access to those markets um, need need access to the internet and it's that's uh, a thing that is lacking for sure. Um, and then we have healthcare issues that, especially with the um, increasing age of farmers, that we have hospitals that are closing in rural areas, and just it's difficult to attract um, doctors who want to live in the middle of nowhere and you know make relatively little compared to their peers who are working in urban areas. And um, there's child care issues, uh, you know, educational networks that are perhaps not as strong as they are in cities and suburbs, and just sort of this basic family and community support right. network. Um, but that's interesting you bring that up because I'm seeing and have seen, at least for the last 10 years, and, and more aggressively now, uh, people coming out of these um, high-taxed areas, or it doesn't matter. There's a lot of movement around the country. And North Carolina happens to be number five 
uh, outside of Florida and uh, Texas and and some of the western states. Uh, and uh, it's hobby farms. It's hobby farms. Uh, the five to ten acres. The five to ten acres. Because you're looking in our market, you know, ten acres. You're looking thirty thousand to maybe sixty thousand. You know, and that's fairly reasonable. Plus, if you're going to, you know, build a two hundred thousand dollar home, you know, three hundred thousand dollar mortgage. Uh, but uh -huh. th there's other opportunities for less. But we're, we're really getting a lot of uh, survival land uh, inquiries. I want to be out in the middle of nowhere with no internet, <laughs> and uh, yeah. and uh, I want to create my own energy. I want to grow my own crops, uh, and, um, and 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 I'm hearing this. Lisa, as I interview people from around the country, my fellow LLCs and other organizations of what's going on, where are we going, you know, who's buying land, what type of land are they buying, and um, and uh, other than the investors, which is a big big part of it, uh, it's the, the the people that grew up or been living in an urban area, and they want to get the heck out, and uh, you know, raise their family and and have eggs and have goat milk and you know, and uh, so I think that's very positive, quite frankly. For sure, that, that there are more people who are wanting to um, be more self-sufficient is absolutely positive, yes, a thousand percent. You know, I was uh, uh, fortunate one of my, uh, my mother's family um, acquired <clears throat> 18 farms uh, not far from here in uh, northern Surrey County, uh, starting in 1909, and uh, they bought 18 farms uh, and during that period. Uh, the last one my granddaddy bought was 300 acres. He paid $3,500 for it, $11.77, 78 cents an acre. 1929, Lisa. So it's all been relative. Uh, land prices have always pretty much related to the value of the dollar in the economy. Uh, right. And that's why it's the best investment there is, uh, with the 4 to 6% annual growth. But um, uh, we're six generations. Not one inch has been sold to anyone outside the family. It's all been either, you know, privately sold to a grandson or a cousin or whatever. And granddaddy had a dairy farm uh, that uh, for many, many years, there was like 86 uh, dairy farms in the county uh, at the high point. And uh, of course he passed in the 60s and one of the 10 children, mother being one, uh, uncle uh, took it over and his wife and then his grandchildren uh, at their demise. And of course uh, it was so much work, it was over four or 500 head. And, Grandy always used to say, he said, you know, I said, are you, are you making more money as time goes on? He says, I'm making the same profit I made when I started. You know, it's labor of love. Now we got 12 chicken houses, you know, the kids do. But, uh, but you know, that fed us, that closed us, that educated the family uh, all these years. Uh, and, you know, uh, we're losing a lot of that, unfortunately. It's uh, one generation. We get a lot of our land listings from estates. Where a family farm is, uh, the the, uh, the parents die or the grandparents die, and the younger ones, you know, they're in California or someplace or tech, or, you know, they care nothing about the farm, and you know, and then we're called to liquidate it. Uh, so uh, right, but, right, uh, and you know, part of why we're losing that, like like across the board, I think, is that just because people are becoming less connected to where their food comes from, and not really realizing the fast foods, fast foods. Yes, right, and not realizing the intrinsic value of of the land that they have, um, not just the you know financial value. And fried foods—that's all we have in our towns. Fried foods. I keep yelling, you know. Right. Come on. <laughs> right. But uh, you know, it's just what it is. But you know, the other thing uh, uh, is education. Uh, you know, like I'll be seventy-two next month, but you know, when I was growing up, and you know, probably in, in your education years. You know, they used to have the food chart, and, you know, uh, it was a pyramid. And this is the best stuff to eat, and this is the worst stuff to eat. You know, it's all broken out. And they've changed that over the years. The USDA's changed that. And, uh, it, it, you know, mm -hmm. how do we get to these kids? That That's, um, my, well, that's my goal. Yeah, yeah, there's such good farm-to-school work being done right now. Um, there's here in my county, um, the there's... Uh, there's good farm to school work being done. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I guess like when I was in high school and I suppose maybe even now the school still has um, an FFA program and, and there were actual ag classes that I got to take. And, you know, that was pretty sweet as an elective. 
Um, I'm not a home economics kind of person, but I um, sure did enjoy, um, you know, my horticulture classes. Absolutely. Um, and uh, so, but, you know, as then budgets got cut and, and FFA was, and ag classes were, you know, um, seen as unnecessary and moved, moved on in a lot of school systems. But now, now the thing is farm to school. And um, I think the edible schoolyard, like Alice Waters' um, uh, edible schoolyard organization in California has done tireless work to um, help to raise the visibility of what can be done when we connect kids with food and um, connect them with gardening. And uh, so farm to school programs are, they look different everywhere, but, you know, largely um, bringing agriculture into the classroom in ways that, um, you know, it's not like here's an ag class, but it's like we're going to work in the garden today and we're going to work on math. And, you know, we have 30 basil plants and they need to be planted 18 inches apart. So how much, how many, how many row feet do we need to plant all of our basil plants? And, you know, you can work math in there. There's so much science that goes on in the garden. Sure, um, and, uh, and then, you know, now, and, and then it's not just, it, it's super applicable. You know, this kind of thing gets kids excited or gets me excited. Like, yeah, totally. you, me mean, too. You, mean I, you mean I put this seed in the <laughs> soil and now I get to pick this tomato and I get to go home and eat this. Exactly. So, um, really helping to connect kids to their food sources and to get them excited about good food and fresh food and about the people who are producing their food. Um, you know, it's like farmers can kind of become celebrities when they visit classrooms and uh, particularly when they bring food with them. Or, um, or animals, uh, you know, bring bring, yeah. the, bring the local goat and a couple uh, rabbits <laughs> and, you know, whatever they got. <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. <laughs> but... Um, you know, I, I the, the, on our, my podcast, um, uh, I actually interviewed uh, uh, FFA and, and uh, their organization, and, and did a whole show on uh, 4-H, and it's amazing uh, the programs that they have for for the young folks. And uh, I'd like to do more. If you've got an organization out there that caters to the to the younger generation, please contact me. I'd love to uh, have you on and talk about what you're doing and and uh, how it's going. Uh, I want to I want to go back and promote you just for a second, Lisa. Um, you're a freelance writer, editor, uh, communications consultant, and you got this incredible website. And you're a food systems advocate. Uh, let me give you a website, and then I'm going to ask you about that. Uh, your website's communication, and then the word simplified communication simplified. Okay, dot net like mine. Let's talk land dot net dot net. Okay, what what is a food system advocate? What does that mean to you? I guess, um, you know, in, in this overall picture of talking about sustainable farming, um, the, the, the piece of sustainable farming that I feel most empowered to work on is, um, is the food system piece. And it's, um, I've been working in building food systems for a few years. Um, I worked with a farmer's market here. We had a U.S. Department of Ag grant to develop um, marketing outlets for farmers and to improve healthy food access in our area in central Kentucky and um, and then it's, it's my interest in food systems that helps to develop the podcast that I have with Hobby Farms Magazine, the, the Hobby Farms Presents Growing Good podcast, where I get to talk with small-scale farmers who are working in the food system. They are expanding markets. Um, they're making good food more accessible. They are working to make the food system a more just place for all of us. And, um, and then I also really enjoy working with farms and food businesses in in their food systems work like how do they fit into the um the food system that exists where they are now and how do they make it a better place and then um you know i write about these things when i can as well um so i guess uh i don't know the advocate piece just comes in in all of those ways um there's also a, a an initiative that i was involved in here and then covid kind of slowed it down and now we're looking at how do we get this thing going again. Um, a, a couple of years ago, we got a, um, the city of Frankfurt, Kentucky, got a local foods, local places grant from the EPA, um, looking at uh, how do we use, the, use, use our food system to boost the economy, um, to 
revitalize our downtown area and um, and to uh, improve things for improve things for our farmers and our food producers. So um, all of that sort of work is what I see as being an advocate for local food systems. Wow, you got quite a talent there, young lady. <laughs> oh. So, hey, the listening audience out there, um, if you've got some topics and stuff uh, that uh, relates to what uh, Lisa does, uh, or information she'll tell you at the end of the show here, but it'll be on the uh, master website, Let's Talk Land. Uh, I always put the uh, email and the uh, website, but I don't put phone numbers, Lisa. Uh, just uh, they can get to you uh -huh. that way. So, uh Hopefully, uh, you'll get some contacts after the show, and then as it's rebroadcast in the future, I'm sure we will, and uh, and uh, get people can get to know you a little better and, and uh, use your bring it resources and talents that you have. That sounds great. Thanks, and and truly, I love hearing from uh, from people who are doing food systems work, and um, it's amazing that we all have the same challenges and also all have completely different challenges, and it's. It's encouraging to hear different ways that people deal with them, for sure. I love hearing from people. Oh, absolutely. Um, from all over. It's uh, it's like this land show. It's incredible the stuff that you learn. I mean, I, I, it's it's uh, I, I'm highly educated on what I do anyway with my uh, designation and other uh, educational. I went to the Swamp School, for example, in Raleigh, uh, Wetland School, and uh, they provided a program. Uh, they provide a lot of them, and actually had Mark Sealinger as one of my first guests when I started the show. Uh, but uh, it, it's amazing what you learn. There are a lot of people that are on the same wavelength and uh, advocating because, you know, we got to do this together. This isn't, uh, this isn't a one-on. Uh, it, it, sure. it takes all of us to uh, make the world go around. I guess that's a cliche. <laughs> what, what makes you get up in the morning, Lisa? Uh, boy, well, generally... Other than the alarm clock. Like, I... I Generally, generally, I have to water what's going on in the greenhouse, so that's what gets me up in the morning. But, um, you know, as far as the work that I do, um, I really do believe so strongly in um, our need for stronger local food systems. Um, and for this is, this is the way that we are going to um, make sustainable agriculture work. Uh, and it's also the way that we're going to feed people the food that they need um uh so i guess i spend i often say like food and farming is my life um and i don't know that maybe is a good thing and maybe it's a bad thing but i spend probably 80 percent of my time thinking about different aspects of food and farming and um i guess the the food systems piece of it is uh often thinking about and and working on how do we get the infrastructure that small-scale farmers need to get their product into the hands of more people. And, um, you know, I've worked on developing online markets and um, done a little bit of work with uh, a food hub that is about to get started here in my area, um, aggregating products from multiple farms um, and, you know, working with local farmers on how do they get their word, get the word out about what they're doing um, and so I suppose all of that is, um, what gets me going, uh, in the morning. I feel like, I feel like legitimately like that's, that's sort of why I'm here. Well, you certainly have a passion for it and, uh, and your exposure and expertise and, and talents, uh, you know, you're going to have a great future. Um, I, I, I just, uh, I'm trying to still figure out this, uh, this sustainable farming um, and um, I, I don't quite see it yet. I mean, you're making a great presentation. What am I missing? Um, is it, well, um, I guess if you want to look at the difference between maybe what sustainable farmers produce and what um, uh, commodity farmers produce, um, that might be a good way of illustrating. Yeah, that would help. That would help me. Um, um, if you, if we were to look side by side at these two places, um, commodity farmers are um, the folks who do work with uh, Bayer, uh, the you know the the organization we talked about in the beginning. When you get Google sustainable farming, it's their ad that pops up first. 
So they, um, um, and I'm not, nothing that I'm saying here is meant to demonize commodity no, that's farmers fine. in no. any way. Um, I, I have many friends who are commodity farmers. Um, Me too. I understand that we would not have anything to eat, um, you know, if we didn't have a local food system and we don't have commodity farms. Um, I think everyone is doing the best that they can. But um, they, commodity farmers are largely using um, seeds and inputs from multinational corporations, and they're large, they are producing uh, things like corn and soybeans um, that are not just going to feed people. They go to feed livestock. They go to make ethanol. Um, uh, they go to make bourbon. Uh, all kinds of things that are not um, directly related to good nutrition, uh, as opposed to um, the small-scale diversified farms and the sustainable farms uh, that are that are producing our vegetables and and it's funny that in the U.S. like our vegetables are called specialty crops uh, in in like U.S. Department of Agriculture language and like it's it's not a specialty crop it is a vegetable like that is what we eat yeah. and um, you know I think of a specialty crop as being um, I don't know something really niche that like doesn't isn't supposed to grow here or whatever you know with I mean avocados in Kentucky would be a specialty crop like sure well, that's it's, it's, but um, but by definition specialty crops are our fruits and our vegetables um, so uh, as opposed to having a field of hundreds of acres of one type of crop or two types of crop corn and soybeans we would have um, you know you're going to look at one acre or five acres or maybe 20 acres of um, all the vegetables that you would eat in a given year um, and, you know, all of them growing at a different time and uh, being planted at a different time and requiring different um, uh, climate and cultural needs. Um, and then the distribution also is, is something that looks different between these two places that the commodity farmers um, don't deal directly with their consumer. They, they are harvested and shipped off to, um, you're usually growing for a, uh, for a larger company that then sells your stuff. So they're shipped off, often loaded in a rail car and taken somewhere else. Um, not always, but often. And then as opposed to small-scale sustainable farmers, um, you know, some of them are contract growers for sure for some of the grocery chains, and um, I would guess that most of them are direct-to-consumer farmers. So these are folks you're going to see at the farmer's market, and you're going to get to know them, yeah. and um, they maybe have a CSA, a community-supported agriculture farm share subscription type of program where you get to know your farmer and you really believe in them, so you invest in them at the beginning of the year and say, I'm going to write you a check now and I'm going to share in your harvest for the rest of the season. Wow. So, um, so when you're looking at, like, what is the difference between these two things, it's not just the inputs and the and what they're growing, but it's also the relationship that you have with them and that they have with their community. Um, and I suppose, actually, I mean, sort of just touching back on, you know, the challenges of rural life, like, um, I feel like, Sustainable farming really does help to build community in a way that um, conventional commodity farming perhaps you, doesn't. Not that farmers don't sure. have their own community, but they're not involved in um, the quality of life for their their larger um, their larger network. You got me feeling better, Lisa. Uh, with about three minutes left, I just want to talk about the future real quick. Uh, but the technologies that are out there, the cloning, the robotics, the temperature, moisture sensors now, aerial imagery. Uh, I had a guy on that worked with NASA from uh, when they first began and has a company now. They can get down to two millimeters uh, of visuals and, and actually go back with all the mapping 10, 20 years since it started and watch the migrations of animals and fires and, and soil changes and erosion. And it's, uh, you know, the technology and then cloning, the, the genome cloning. Uh, or genome manipulation uh, of, of plants and, and the animals too, and of course GPS technology. You know, all these uh, devices are, are uh, precision to agriculture, and then the robotic systems 
you know, there's farmers out there that, you know, they just sit in the tractor. It's all connected to GPS and, and uh, sit there and listen to the radio and harvest, you know, 100 acres of crops, <laughs> you know, and that's even becoming more efficient and profitability and, and safeness and, and environmental friendly. But, you know, what, what I got out of the, your last uh, uh, conversation was uh, uh, sustainable farming is, reminds me of a beautiful flower garden with all the different types of flowers and how they're all intermingled in these beautiful flower beds. And I see that with agriculture, too. I mean, there is beauty there, right? Mm, mm, for sure, for sure. And the, the technological advancements that you're talking about, um, I, the, I feel like all of this is important. Um, and I also don't want to see our food system just sort of fall over to robots. Um, you know, that, like, uh, yeah. I would like to see the future of sustainable agriculture really supporting the people who want to do the work of feeding folks and... Um, uh, there are scale-appropriate advancements for sustainable and regenerative farmers that help them to do their work as well um, that, uh, that range from, like, simple hand tools that just, that just make sense to, sure. um, you know, to, to, to more computerized systems and irrigation systems. Nothing like getting dirt under your fingernails, right? And by the way, yes. Lisa, Elon Musk is on the way to save us. He's uh, putting up 4,800, or I don't, don't remember the number, but it's a lot of satellites that uh, will now open up communication uh, instead of uh, Wi-Fi and, and, uh, and, and wire uh, with these new satellites. So uh, I think he's already launched four or 500 of those. So uh, Yeah, I, I, I know two farmers actually who, um, who have um, the, the Elon Musk. Oh, they already have it? Now. Wow, <laughs> yes. that's exciting. All right, well, let's get you closed out here. Uh, how do they get in touch with you, Lisa? Can you give us your uh, contact information, please? Sure. Um, uh, as far as social media goes, I am most active on Instagram, um, and my uh, handle on Instagram is Freelance Farmer Chick. And then, uh, in terms of email, that is a good way to reach me as well. And my email address is Lisa at Lisa hyphen writes like writes an article w r i t e s dot com. Cool. You want to give your phone number out? You don't have to. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll reserve my phone number. That's fine. They can get it. No, that's fine. And that's okay. That's why I don't put it on the website. So, um, but anyway, you've been a fabulous guest today. Uh, I appreciate you covering this information. I've had a lot of people that have asked about this, and I think I found the right uh, ambassador here. And uh, so you're welcome to come back anytime. So stay with us for a second as we close out, if you don't mind. Sure. Thank you for joining us today. Let us know how you like the show. If you have any questions or topics you'd like to suggest, we would appreciate them. All questions are welcome, and all of our guests may be emailed with your questions as well. This show is for the public and, most importantly, for real estate agents who do not have a source of land education. All of our shows are downloaded after the show this morning on our master website, www.letstalkland.net. You'll also find us on Spotify and Podbean. My email is lou at mylandpro.com. My cell number is 336-669-1405. We'd love to thank our sponsor, landhub.com. Are you looking to buy or sell land? Landhub previews thousands of properties. Go there. You don't have to be a realtor. If you want to sell your property, uh, you can go right there. Uh, I get a lot of business through landhub.com. We appreciate their sponsorship. Rodney, how they get in touch with us here? Well, Lou, they can go to our new website. Have you checked it out yet? Uh, I just get it up and running. Yes, it, it is up and going. Okay. John finally him. got it done. No, I called him, and he said that he launched it yes, yesterday. Yes, he did. Great. Yep. Yeah, he's done a fabulous job. Yes. Now so everybody can go to WKTE1090.com and check out our new uh, website. And also, they can download the Simple Radio app. And also, now he's working on our Facebook page. Cool. So. Cool. We'll so have, uh, all of it new and updated. So it's simple. Is it real simple? Yeah, it's real simple. Simple, simple radio, radio app. And you put in WKT ten ninety. That's right. And listen to us anywhere in the universe. That's right. You used to say the world. Yeah, mm-hmm. universe. Okay, but uh, we got a little contest going. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You know, if, uh, since I've been involved with the station here, uh, I've been happier, and uh, uh, because we only play happy music, beach music, and oldies, and uh, so. Uh, I told Rodney, I said, I'd, I'd like to start a competition. Mm-hmm. You agreed? And the competition is to take our beautiful Wave logo, and you can find it on our website, and to make it happy. Now, what do I mean by that? 
illustrate, draw, sculpture, whatever you want a medium you want to use, and take that logo. Don't change it, but make it happy. You could add words like we're the happy radio station mm -hmm. or put some suns or surfboard or whatever creative way you want to express a happy radio. That's show. right. And John did a little sample there. Yeah, for everybody up on top too. of our new yeah. website. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. The contest ends uh, the last day of June. Uh, there will be a five hundred dollar uh, gift given out by uh, Land. Uh, Let's talk And uh, so, um, if you've got a creative urge or know someone, and then just simply send that into the station, and we will review and announce. And then we'll be using that logo. You have to give us rights. We'll be using that logo in the future because we only play what? Happy, happy music. And we won some nice awards. Yeah, six years in a row being the top radio station on the East Coast. Just wait till we get this happy thing. That's It'll be right. The happiest radio station yeah. in the country, mm -hmm. not so, just the East Coast. That's right. And you won a nice award. Yeah, the Reader's Choice Award. For what? For announcer of the year. Oh, I thought you were going to skip that part. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. Well thank deserved. you. Thank you. Hey, we'll see you next week.